This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today we chat with Dr. James Smith, a professor of philosophy at the Calvin University, about his most recent book, How to Inhabit Time. Our conversation focuses on institutions and individuals reckoning with the past and discerning how to live in the light and shadows of this past, the role of liturgy, and finding stability within our community amidst rewriting our own stories. Thanks so much for joining me to discuss your book. Um, I think we're just going to jump right in. No time to waste. We're going to go all in. So the first question I have for you is like sort of like what was the motivation for this work? Just because it feels like so much of your own spiritual history and what you call like dispensationalism informs a lot or at least part of this book. So I guess I'm just wondering if we could dive in, define some of these terms that you sort of share and then sort of situate them in some context. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the motivation is, it sort of toggles back and forth between kind of uh, personal journey and collective wrestling. So uh, it is true that on the one hand, uh, I'm trying to sort of work out uh, some themes that I think I discovered in my own pilgrimage. And even as you know, from the beginning of book from my own therapy and counseling, and that was in a sense, looking for wholeness as a person was an occasion to sort of revisit the significance of history and time. So there's that, there's that kind of personal impetus, but as I was um, sort of inching towards this book, uh, is also when I would say we in the United States collectively started to really grapple again with systemic racism, police brutality, um, you know, the, 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 the sort of um, national reckoning uh, that George Floyd's murder uh, occasioned was also a really kind of huge jolt uh, in this project. And so it, I, I think both of those kinds of threads uh, sort of drove the project. Yeah, you have a line in there that I really appreciate. It was like, you consume the fruits of history that are both like nourishing and poisonous. And I feel like that uh, just kind of makes me wonder like the the role of, of institutions that they, and, and uh, history in general, like how how do you, you know, carry the weight of history, but then also convert it into something that is a little more healthy to hold on to, or sort of like with respect to, and and still having respect for for that, like the history that has occurred, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, first of all, I think, um, I think we carry history, right? History isn't what's behind us. It's not what we've left behind. It's actually what we still carry with us. And so it's not a question of whether or not we, you know, history is what we carry. It's how we carry it. And and I think um, the first sort of significant move or step towards integrity 
an integrality, we might say, is is um, recognizing that. Do you know what I mean? In other words, I think I think a lot of naivete um, engenders a kind of ignorance that is dangerous because because we or or um, either personally or collectively we think, oh no no no, we're over that or that's in the past or we can forget that, and we don't realize that oh no no no, history is what we carry. So once if we wake up to that reality, um, then I think. Uh, it's a question of reckoning with it. And for me, reckoning is is that mix that you were pointing out of. It's both, okay, where are the blessings and where are the mm-hmm. curses? Where are, what are, what do I need to sort of um, face and l- seek forgiveness for? And what can I l- receive gratefully as a gift that is propelling me or us into the future? And so I think, I think that work of reckoning is kind of confrontational, mm-hmm. like I have to face that history, but it can also be um characterized by gratitude and receptivity because i can also see the possibilities that have been handed down to me and i th- i think it's that mix and so so you're always kind of sifting history mm-hmm. and and we don't want to ha- work with the illusion that we could step out of it or leave it behind because if we did we would also spurn our mm-hmm. gifts yeah throwing the baby out with the bathwater as they say yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like the what you're what you're saying is how to carry history is the first thing to do is to, like you said, you said like reckon with it, which means like understand that you are carrying it, but then to find like the good parts of that. Um, yeah. So I don't th- I don't think we can ever you know there's there's kind of like you can drive into a ditch on either side (laughs) here. Do you know what I mean? You can sort of fall off both sides of the wagon because on the one hand, um, you know, I think a lot of us and and maybe a lot of Americans uh, want to kind of like stick our heads in the sand and pretend the past is behind and let's get over it. And so that that's kind of naive and ignorant. And then we won't reckon with our history. I think then there's another danger or risk on the other side, which is to just, demonize mm-hmm. our history right like to just utterly and and to almost kind of blame the past for not having the moral enlightenment that we have achieved given the time that we've had and I, that's why i do think it's um it's this delicate tightrope of realizing that history is also what has made things possible for me. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. None of us are self-made. None of us are just sheer will. We are all heirs of gifts of possibility that have been handed down, which is why I think the reckoning also has to include this sense of, um, yeah, where, where are the treasures buried too? Like what, and they, and they might be, those treasures might be, be buried in, terribly ugly containers right that we need to to peel back and and do away with but i i do think um we can't just demonize our past either yeah um i guess what's an example of something that like has that beauty that comes out of that very ugly box uh you can you think of any 
<laughs> well, so yeah, and this and this is where I, I don't know what, what interests you more, whether it's the kind of collective sort of communal social dynamic or the personal dynamic. Let, let me try one of each, okay? So I would say uh, I, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I'm, I became a citizen several years ago. So I feel like I do come to the American experiment with slight outsider's eyes, right? And on the one hand, I'm really, really puzzled by those who seem to be just so like uh, um, scandalized by something like the 1619 mm -hmm. Project, which points out, listen, uh, slavery is something that was woven into the warp and woof of the American experiment from the beginning. I, I just can't imagine why, why somebody would have a stake in denying that. It just seems so clear and obvious. On the other hand, I don't think that that means that some of the ideals and ideas that nourished the fraught and failing aspects of the American experiment weren't liberative, mm -hmm. right? Liberating. And, and in that sense, uh, um, you know, Dr. Martin Luther King is a really, really interesting example of, I think, somebody who does this work of sifting history, of reckoning with the past, but also knowing sort of what to what to leave behind, but what to pick up and go forward. I, I think that's really instructive for us. But you can also imagine this at a personal level too. Um, in the book, I, I appeal to a song by Brandy Carlisle. I don't know if you know Brandy Carlisle, but she's kind of a favorite singer songwriter of, of mine. And uh, she has this wonderful song about, it's written to somebody who has clearly hurt her and harmed her. Uh, and she says, by the way, I forgive you, and maybe I should thank you, right? Because there's a sense in which even though you hurt me and that was wrong, uh, there's also a sense in which I could never be the person I am today if I hadn't undergone right. that. So there's always something to sort of be kind of strangely uh, um, received from our history. And I, I think that's the the trick. yeah. I feel you mentioned like the German word. I'm not going to try and pronounce it, but it's like a holy history. It's like the unfurling of history as like the drama of salvation. I think I wrote down. It's a great word. It's a great word. It is. Yeah. In the sense that like, you know, you can see that uh, things unfold in time that can be liberating and saving and to, 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 to see that history can have a kind of sacred character about it is part of the, the risk that's risky, right? It's not the same as justifying all the evil things that have happened. It's not a matter of saying, Oh, it had to be this way. It's more like saying, given that this is what has happened, given this is what we've endured, um, who can we be? And who are we called yeah. to be, um, given that history? I, I think that's a very different exercise. Yeah. I feel like that reminds me. I read this essay by Rebecca Solnit not too long ago, and it was kind of about fairy tales and how, like, what do you do when you are the main character in the middle of one? Of just like kind of like that's trusting great. that the story will resolve and that you have like the the virtues and values that you know, whatever the situation that threw you into this chaotic fairy tale, like uh, story that you need to persist through that, like you just have to trust that it'll come to an ending that will be good and rewarding. Yeah. 
No, that's brilliant. And it, and it resonates with the theme that I talk about in How to Inhabit Time, which is another German uh, term. Um, we won't say the German, but thrownness. Uh-huh. Martin Heidegger talks about the sense that we are kind of thrown into our lives, right? And you kind of wake up and you're like, how did mm-hmm. I get here? And that's just the human condition. And now the question is, what are you going to do with that? Given that you find yourself thrown into this situation, what does it look like to kind of pick up what's been thrown your way and now forge a life going forward? So, so it sounds like Solnit's asking a similar yeah. thing. Um, I guess that makes me wonder, maybe like coming back to the idea of, you know, like institutions, be they hmm, local community ones, familial ones, church ones, uh, government ones, sort of like, mm, what is the, or like how at each of those levels, like how can we really, like so much of Kelly, what you're saying, trying, I'm thinking there's a lot of thoughts going on. I'm trying to formulate a question. Like you're, you're saying that much of what we, we have is contingent on these big things. Um, how does that, uh, you know, how do we go forward in that? Like with like seasonality in mind, like in, in much of your book, you mentioned that there's like, or through you've a lot of meditations through like Ecclesiastes and like how there's different times for different things. So like, how, how do you like, how do you, I guess, as an individual slash community member slash institution, those are all very different, I imagine, but maybe there's something similar in how you recognize how you how how do you recognize like where you are in time? Right, right, right. So let let's stick with the institutional level that that you started with, and I think um, the first thing that has to happen is this kind of. First of all, the exercise does require a certain degree of kind of stepping back and reflection on who we are and when we are, right? So you you do have to kind of like disembed yourself from just the grind of being part of an institution and step back and ask ourselves, how did we get here, right? Where did this, and and it, it will sound crazy to say so, but for some, some communities, recognizing that their institution has a history is part of the kind of revolution and mindset that has to happen, right? In other words, to realize that this institution didn't just like fall from the sky or drop down from heaven or wasn't just kind of like, even if it was founded by somebody they know, there's still a whole history behind it that got there. And and in some ways, just realizing that institutions have a history should temper our any illusions we have about our institutions for, for starters. And then I do think we have to like kind of undertake this sort of audit, if you will, of like, okay, what's the story we tell about our institution? And are there any blind spots in that story where we are? So is our story spin? Are we kind of like telling a narrative that, that forgets, you know, the brokenness of this institution or who was excluded by this institution. So I I do think it's kind of this, it's this exercise in re-narration. And in some, some ways, what institutions need are outsiders to tell us 
what we look like, right? Or, or where we came from, because otherwise we can become echo chambers and we just sort of repeat the same stories to ourselves over and over again. And, and I think sometimes the gift of the outsider who comes in with new eyes and says, you know, do you not see this in the corner over here? Like there's, I think, I think that's an important part of it. And, but the whole point of that exercise is to not just kind of wallow in failure or guilt or whatever. It's precisely to then actually be liberated from lies that we might've been telling ourselves for the sake of living into a different future. Right. This is um, the opening of my book, uh, engages really significantly with James Baldwin, who I think is, is in the 20th century was one of just the great and most powerful American voices trying to do this for the sake of the, the institution we call, you know, the United States. Um, I, I think this can happen on all kinds of levels. It can happen in a neighborhood. It can uh, happen in a city. It can happen in a congregation. Um, and I think it's not the sort of thing that's sort of one and done. It's more like continuing to build this into the rhythms of who we are and how we are together. And then I think we're more primed to sort of say, okay, so what should we be doing going forward? I, I don't know. Is that is that still too abstract to be helpful? Yeah, no, or? I think that makes sense. Um, I feel like I think a lot about paradigm shifts, and that's kind of what it sounds like what you're saying is um, – like you're, you have this context and this narrative that you're saying, but then like you get this new piece of evidence or maybe you get that outsider perspective that really, you know, changes how you think about what you're thinking about. And like, yeah. And that, that story that you're, you know, you, that you're telling yourself. So I think that. Yeah. I'm, I'm a big fan mm-hmm. of Kuhn, by the way. So I, I um, take, here's, here's a concrete example, somewhat concrete example. So, you know, I, I'm sitting here in the city of Grand Rapids. I'm thinking just a few blocks away is sort of downtown. And, and there are two interstates that course through the middle of it. And if I'm walking down on ground level, you know, there are these towering concrete spaces that have completely reorganized the way people live and move and have their being in the city. And, you know, for everybody in my lifetime, those things have always been there, right? So, so you could fall into the trap of imagining that they are just natural. Do you know what I mean? Like that's, oh yeah, that like these, these things might as well be a million years old because I've never experienced a city with them. But then you realize somebody, you know, talks to you and says, you know, well, certainly a hundred years ago, those things weren't there. And do you know who was there when those things weren't there? And it was a very, very different, vibrant community. Oh, well then why did those highways go in that, in that space? Ah, well, who made that choice and who Mm -hmm. was harmed and, and uh, um, who had the power to make those decisions? Now all of a sudden you walk under a highway overpass downtown and you're like, Oh, this is a fraught space. And um, again, that's not that's not just some big unveil, and it's like, oh, we're we're terrible. It's like, yeah, there are terrible aspects to this. Now, what mm-hmm. are we going to do? Now, what are we going to do? We're not tearing them down. So now, what are we going to do? I think that sort of um, it, it's like gaining new eyes that show you that what's around you is the product of human cultural decisions over time, and what what does it mean to grapple yeah. with that? I think that's a great example. Just I feel like the tangality of, you know, roads and processes and like you're going somewhere um, on roads usually. 
Um, I think that's a good example of, of, yeah, like that it's all part of like a process and not just um, like the infrastructure is the process. That's right. That's right. That's right. Um, But that makes me wonder much of this is not just about institutions, but a particular institution of like the church, it almost feels like. Um, So I guess I'm kind of wondering if that applies as well to, to the church. Cause I, I feel like, or at least in my experience, a lot of, um, church setting contexts or spiritual groups in general, they um, have an appeal to like capital T truth. Um, and I guess that, and like, I don't know, where am I going with this question? Um, yeah, no, no, I, I totally, I think I get what you're saying, which is yes. So first of all, yes, absolutely. This all applies to the church and it is true in how to have time. I'm really interested in, kind of like what is the spiritual significance of realizing that human beings are historical Mm -hmm. creatures, right? That we're embedded in time. I think um, one of the sort of dangerous naivete of of a lot of churches is the illusion that they are not products of Mm -hmm. history, but somehow they just kind of like descend straight from the truth or from the sky or from heaven. And, and in that sense, they live under the illusion that they are kind of above mm-hmm. time, right? That they are, or they're immune to time. And in the book, I say that the people imagine that they inhabit no when, Right. Like like they they have a view from nowhere because they inhabit no when. And I think that's an illusion for any creature. And and by the way, for, for the record, too. And I think it is good theology to say that no human creature is above time. Right. Um, so I, I think if if churches, congregations, religious traditions Um, take seriously the contingency of their own histories that that by the way doesn't mean that there's no spiritual truth it just means that uh, um, the way we experience god the way that we know god the way that we uh, uh you know live out a spiritual life is itself uh, a temporal historical unfolding process And um, it's also why uh, religious communities, I would say, need to be open to reform, right? So it can't, it's not, because they never descended from the sky to start with. So uh, there's a sense in which the adventure of an ongoing relationship with even the eternal God sort of has to play out in time and history, mm-hmm. which is why you keep seeing new things, new epiphanies, new unveilings, new new revelations, which is why then institutions can't just get frozen in one time, right? What 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 often happens it's it's one of the reasons why I think nostalgia is a really powerful drug for religious traditions because they imagine, Oh no, we, we used to have this all locked Mm -hmm. down. And if we could just get back to that time, um, you know, everything would be good. But the problem is 
nostalgia is always a very edited version of the past. <laughs> and and what happens is they they just freeze some particular time in amber and imagine, oh no, that was the golden age. And I, I just don't think that that's, I don't think that's good theology. And I don't think it's a, a healthy way of being a creature. Yeah, that almost sounds like the opposite of what you're saying earlier about like when you're uncover something within like your institution's history and you're just like, oh, this whole institution that is evil. This almost sounds like the opposite of like you see something that was good in the past and then kind of like throw out all of the bad parts. Right, right. You you just happily and conveniently ignore those things. Exactly. That's right. Whereas I think it's better uh, um, to sort of be honest about mm-hmm. those things. It's interesting. For example, within within Christianity, which is which is my tradition, uh, you know, most streams. One of the core practices of gathered worship is confession. Mm-hmm. Right, where you sort of acknowledge all the ways that you have failed by, by the sins we have committed and omitted, uh, the sins of omission and commission. And, and uh, in that sense, you would expect, for example, people who are formed by a practice of confession to be willing to sort of face up to our mm-hmm. failures. But uh, that's, that's not always the case, it turns out. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that you talk some in this book about liturgy and I feel I personally love any type of religion or like any belief system that has like a strong liturgy. That's like always really compelling because like you get to embody and enact out a lot of uh, core values within, within that uh, belief system. But some of, some of like what I, I personally wrestle with between like liturgy and tradition is like balancing that with, um, like understanding the meaning of it and like the repeated symbology of it, but not like getting lost in it. And like, what, what do you keep and what is like a useful um, uh, tradition to, to uphold given that? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, um, ritual and liturgical inheritances are another example of things that are historical contingent, you know, they've been formed over time. So there are gifts carried in them, but like all sort of in his historical inheritances, we have to keep discerning um, what is needed now, what is faithful now. And I, I think that, I think that continuity with the past is really, really significant. I, like you, I, I think um, the gift of ritual and liturgical forms is actually one of the ways that we resist the tyranny of the present, right? And just the the narrowness of a kind of presentism. On the other hand, um, it can't just look like repristinating the past over and over again. It has to look like this kind of intentional inheritance, which might then sometimes need call for reform, renewal, you know, change, adaptation, addition, um, to, to address what is it that God is calling us to in this moment of history and time. And so that's why I do think it's a dynamic of, it's always an, a dynamic of grateful inheritance 
but also critical reception so that we discern what are the pieces of this that we want to carry forward and what are pieces that actually are blind spots or are exclusion exclusive uh, that are that are shutting people out I, I think those are all questions we need to keep asking yes and I I feel like that process can get very exhausting is there like a spot like any space for like stability in within all of this even though this all of this is important to like reflect and critique and you know update but like yeah it is like it's tiring to always be hypercritical and not necessarily trusting your liturgies and rituals that you're doing so what yeah it's a good point i i think i think ideally what you kind of hope for is something like this kind of core spine if you will like this core plot line of a ritual or a liturgy that we we can sort of entrust ourselves to. And then that can always be contextualized and adapted for different contexts and for different moments and seasons without having to like constantly relitigate what constitutes the core narrative plot line of, of the liturgy. I, I think that's exactly right because otherwise, um, there has to be continuity also so that we have multi-generational community around these things. Right. Like I Mm -hmm. I think it's really just to take a very sort of not, not trite example, but a simple example, you know, if, if teenagers never have an opportunity to learn hymns that 90 year olds sing in a sense, it's very difficult for us to ever, experience being part of that same community mm-hmm. and it also we miss out on the opportunity I, I think a lot for example about um folks in in my uh congregation and community who's you know struggle with alzheimer's they're in uh, um uh retirement homes and assisted living facilities and they they can't remember all kinds of things but they can remember mm-hmm. hymns and that continue and for young people to then come and be able to sing the same story with them, I think is a very powerful expression of community. And so that that's another argument, I think, for continuity and not constant reinvention. Yeah, that makes sense. And two, it I feel like uh, if something is tapping into some of that like essential truth, lowercase or capitalized there, um, then it would be consistent sort of throughout time maybe no matter what that's right that's right um hmm. so sort of like part of part of all this and you mentioned this like right at the beginning of your of your book about like you're urging readers to like slow down like slowly read this book and you have many stopping points of meditations so what do you hope that sort of readers get out of these combinations of like scripture and reflection and like the urge to slow down. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny, Sarah. I think uh, sometimes I hope the book frustrates people in just the right way Uh, in the sense that uh, I don't think the book is offering a set of lessons or formulas or like it's it's not bullet point takeaways it's more like as you were saying before a kind of like posture um 
and, and so what I'm hoping is that even the very form of the book invites people to practice a new kind of attention. It's, it's, that, that's why I describe it as contemplative at the end of the day. I think what contemplation is at the end of the day is a new and focal kind of attention um, to my moment, to my history, to when I am, but it's also a kind of attention to my neighbor, to my community, to my interior life. And, and in order to achieve that, you have to shut down and shut out a lot of chatter and distraction, mm-hmm. which we all know is a big challenge today. But I, I actually think um, sort of the health of our society and the health of our individual lives going forward is staked on our ability to be able to do that kind of um, quieting mm-hmm. and listening and dwelling. Uh, and so I, I'm, my hope is, and, and which is why the answer to the questions of like, when am I, are actually radically different depending on who we are, right? So I can't, t- I can't answer that for you. All I can do is kind of try to invite you into the practice of asking the question for yourself and getting to a place where you can listen to start to hear the answer burbling. And uh, I think if we can even achieve that, we will be in a much healthier place. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Like dwelling and you use like discerning, the word discernment a lot. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, for me, discernment is uh, um, the whole point of reckoning with the past is precisely now so we can be attentive and attuned to the present and discern, that is ask, okay, what am I called to? What are we supposed to be doing? What what is asked of us now given uh, um, where we've come from? And I, I don't think that's just formulaic. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yes, we are all called to love our neighbors, but uh, um, what that means in your life, given your gifts and your history and what it means in my life is is kind of radically um, contextual. And so we need to each hear that sort of call on our lives so that we can answer it well for the sake of, of um, our communities. Yeah, I think that. That's a, a beautiful way to, to put it. Um, uh, a figure that, that you, you mentioned in, the, in your book that I come back to a lot is like Kierkegaard's Night of Faith. I, I feel like within this context, it's like the Night of Faith is constantly leaping, but he's like, it's like a, an understanding of where he is and like where he is aiming to go that I hadn't really like ever really put that together in that in that way before. Yeah. And the, and the Night of Faith is sort of... Uh, um, able to land in the present mm. in a way that is completely animated by faith in the eternal and at the same time completely comfortable and acting it in the now, in, in, the, in history, in the moment in which we find ourselves. And I, I think uh, there are way, way, way too many religious folks who don't actually know how to be human. Right, or they don't really know how to be historical, mm. uh, and they're, and they're kind of always chomping at the bit to get to heaven above history. Whereas I think the Knight of Faith is the one who, as Kierkegaard says, knows how to land in the present 
and sort of walk faithfully in the now. And I think uh, that's harder than it looks. Yeah. I mean, Kierkegaard is like, I'm never going to be this person. He like totally. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's very yeah. aspirational, right? Always yeah. striving. Um, yes, yes. What does Kierkegaard say? Uh, you know, uh, he, I think something like, you know, I can never say I am a Christian. I can just say yeah, I'm becoming yeah. a Christian, which I was very sympathetic so I feel to. like that, you know, becoming, you know, like, you know, when you are and like you're going, it's like that, that process that we talked about. Exactly. Or different roads that we're, you know, taking or making or breaking, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Um, I don't think I have any other questions. Is there anything else about the book that you think is important for listeners to know about, hear about? Yeah, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, I think uh, um, I, I will say that the the form of the book is really important to me. And the, in the inclusion of like art and poetry mm-hmm. and music and film is all kind of, for me, that's part of the project, right? It's a, it's a different way of inhabiting the world. And so um, my hope is that people don't just kind of look for the ideas or the message, but that it's almost, I hope it's to read it is something of its own experience, even if the experience is meant to kind of catalyze reflection on ideas and convictions and things like that. So uh, I, I suppose time will tell whether or not I was yeah, successful. I really like the inclusion <laughs> of uh, like the different songs and lyrics and things to kind of, I kind of feel like it goes back to like what you were saying about hymns is like, you know, you get this cultural connection that you can tie these ideas to throughout, throughout history. That's so. great. That's great. That's encouraging. Thank <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I didn't know all of the songs or some of the references, but I'm like, sure. oh, no, this no, is no, fun. No. I can look thing, this up. That's the thing about music <laughs> yeah, these days, yeah, right? So We're so stratified. I did. I put together a, a Spotify playlist uh, oh, for cool. the music music that's mentioned in the book and then music I was listening to while writing it. So nice. So I'll have to point readers to that as well then. Oh, that'd be great. I guess as a final question, uh, what can readers look out for you in the future? Ah, I'm I'm just getting started on the next book, which is going to be uh, on mm. art and the art of contemplation. Yeah, so I'm I'm really interested in the way contemporary art is its own sort of humbling challenge to us, uh, difficult beauty. Mm. I think I'm going to call it. And uh, so yeah, I'm I'm really excited to get to work on that aesthetics and. Morality is one of my favorite topics, so maybe I'll reach out to yeah, you again. <laughs> that's the space. We'll have to talk about that book Fantastic. in a few years. All right. Well, thank you so that much for great. taking the time to talk about your book with me. My pleasure. Thanks for your interest.